Welcome to Calming the Chaos Podcast, where we help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos Podcast provides you with self-help resources for handling anxiety, stress, and overwhelm. It is not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks for tuning in. And now, let the chaos begin. And yes, the chaos has officially begun. Once again, we are talking about eating disorders. And one of the things I really want to emphasize is that um, during this uh, last couple of months, I've had a practicum student here. Her name is Amelia Meacham. And Amelia is a student at the University of Puget Sound, who is a senior and she's gonna be graduating in May. She's been such a delight to work with. And uh, so she's got a uh, psychology major and a religious minor. Um, and she, again, has been helping me to learn so much um, while I'm helping her to learn as well. Um, she is going to be talking with us today about the health at every size approach to treating eating disorders. Uh, and then, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Amelia Meacham. And we're going to be talking about eating disorders once again from a different perspective. Welcome, Amelia, to Calm in the Chaos. Hi. Hey, oh my goodness. It's going to be so sad to see you go, though. I'm starting to get a little bit emotional about it. You know, I mean, it's been great working with you, but I'm sure we'll be colleagues in the future months yeah. and years well, or whatever, right? Yeah, and you've been a wonderful mentor to me. So Aww, I'm really glad you. we get to do this project together. Yeah, so tell us how you got interested in, in treating eating disorders, Amelia. Yeah, so... Um, my interest in eating disorders really came from my own treatment. Um, in in my um, high school years, in my adolescence, I was bouncing around higher levels of care, lower levels of care, sort of doing that cyclical thing. And I think I would have considered myself in sort of pseudo recovery. Um, and at a certain point, insurance probably decided I was recovered. And um, because the way our system works, I was weight restored and that's considered enough by a lot of insurance companies. Um, but I was really privileged in college to actually see a therapist whose health at every size aligned. And I really considered that um, to be when my recovery journey started. Um, and I understood what it truly meant to be free from this eating disorder, which I never thought would happen. I thought this eating disorder would always torment my mind. Um, so to understand that liberation and that freedom was really inspiring to me. Um, and so I think the reason that I got interested in eating disorders is the same reason that a lot of people, practitioners do, um, that I wanted to sort of pay it forward. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, also understanding the health at every size paradigm um, that really inspired me then and continues to now to really um work against these systemic issues that contribute to eating disorders and um, the discriminative care that is occurring. 
And I remember you saying that it wasn't until you moved to Washington State that you received the treatment that was a health at every size approach. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so when we get into talking about health at every size, is there an, a, a sort of a definition that we can give of like health at every size can maybe be perceived as a certain sort of a thing, but what would you define it as? Yeah. Um, well, I think I'll probably just read off the ASDA because ASDA has it trademarked. Um, and so the definition from their website is that the health at every size principles promote health equity, support ending weight discrimination, and improve access to quality health care regardless of size. And you can go at asda.com to, to find more about that. <laughs> All right, so here is the link to ASDA. And then I also put a ticker at the bottom of the screen for Amelia. Welcome, Amelia. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so that was the official definition and um, what they have, what ASDA has on their website. And of course, uh, this link will also be in the show notes. Awesome. Okay, so you are doing a thesis paper on something. Can you explain what you're doing? <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? So um, I am looking at weight biases within eating disorder diagnosis and treatment. And then I'm looking at health at every size as an alternative to combating that weight biases. What exactly is weight bias? <laughs> yeah, so how I think about weight biases is that when we're defining health and well-being, there's this emphasis on weight and weight loss. So those two concepts are very interconnected. Well, so if you have an example of a weight bias, do you have something that you can put out there so that people can understand, you know, how people can actually experience weight bias in our society today? Yeah. Um, and first, I'm going to give the little disclaimer um, that I am like a white woman who exists in a smaller body. And so I think it's important when I'm talking about weight biases to um, acknowledge my positionality in that, in that a lot of what I'm talking about is coming from empirical findings and it's coming from folks who I've talked to who have been vulnerable enough to share their own experiences, um, but just to acknowledge my positionality as before I get started. Absolutely, and I would like to do the same thing as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, where do we see, I mean, we see weight biases anywhere. I think um, the main way I'll be talking about it is in healthcare. So um, people who exist in larger bodies are assumed to be unhealthy or to have some sort of medical issue um, when oftentimes that isn't the case. Um, we can also see it um, in the way that folks in larger bodies are treated, they're often assumed to be more unattractive or to be weak-willed or to be un uncompliant. So that's sort of how you see it show up. 
Well, and I think some other things that show up as well is is that um, when a person goes in to see a medical provider, they the first thing they have them do besides signing in is stepping on a scale, right? And then yeah. seeing a weight and actually uh, associating that weight with health uh, isn't actually accurate, right? Yeah, definitely. The BMI um, was originally created as a measure, and it really only measured um, like Europe, Western European men's bodies, and yet we use it as a measure um, for all of these different bodies who exist in different compositions. So it's really not a reliable or valid measure in any way. So when a doctor sees you and they weigh you, they could have a weight bias. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And um, when we look at insurance companies, um, doctors really are required to weigh you. And oftentimes they get sort of reimbursed less if they don't, and they get reimbursed more if they push this concept of weight loss. So it's a really biased system as a whole. Hmm. Gosh, I didn't know that. <laughs> See, yeah. you teach me something new every day. Um, <laughs> I did not know that. So if you don't weigh it, so if a person comes into a doctor's office and they say, I don't want to be weighed, then mm -hmm. the pr practitioner has to note that and then they don't get reimbursed as much? Well, yeah, it's more nuanced than that as most things are. Um, like if we're looking at Medicaid, um, the doctor gets sort of like a grade and if they're not filling certain, this is quite complicated, I'm not sure if I can describe this well, but essentially, yes, they would be reimbursed less if they're not recording measures like weight. Wow. I think we've kind of uncovered a bit of a conspiracy here, but yeah, that could be a rabbit hole we go down maybe on another stream. Mm -hmm. um, so, all right, we've got this weight bias that's happening and um, we, you know, or healthcare providers will maybe assume things about people who are larger body bodies and they can also assume things uh, with people in smaller bodies as well, right? So um, looking at a person and looking at their physical weight and assuming something is a weight bias. Is that kind of what we're uh, looking at right now? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, so how do we deal with this? I mean, so part of what you're doing in your uh, thesis is uh, trying to address barriers to um, weight bias, right? And so we're talking about doctors, we're talking about therapists, we're talking about dietitians, and how are we going to solve this problem, Amelia? You are a young voice and you have a lot of ideas. So you go, girl. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So this is sort of the bulk of my paper looking at um, like what causes these barriers to treatment. And I broke it into three distinct parts. And the first being this lack of perceived need among the individual with an eating disorder. And when I sort of look back and think on the larger scale, um, we can think about this stereotype, which has the unfortunate acronym of SWAG, skinny, white, affluent girl. And 
I think if you ask most people in society, this is what they assume an eating disorder to look like. Um, and this also perpetuates um, medical care deeply. And then we sort of swirl in concepts of diet culture and weight biases, which are so deeply entrenched in our culture. And this sort of results in, I'll, like I'll give sort of an example here, um, but if a thin person um, is engaging in drastic e eating behaviors or is losing a lot of weight, I think a lot of people have this red flag that goes up that says like, oh, that's eating disorder behavior, they should go get treated. And if a thin person sort of just exists in their body and they're, you know, engaging in healthy behaviors, there's, they can just exist. Um, but if we're looking at someone who exists in a larger body, if they're engaging in behaviors where they're dieting a lot, they have a really poor relationship to self and body, um, and they're losing weight, oftentimes they're celebrated. And they're, and everyone around them is like, oh, like, look at that person. That's what everyone should strive to be, even if it was incredibly unhealthy and harmful. Um, and we know that eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of any mental illness, only second to opiate use disorder. Right. And we also know that it doesn't matter if someone exists in a smaller body or a larger body, the risks are exactly the same. And so the fact that we're celebrating this is so harmful. And at the same time, if someone who exists in a larger body is not, um, is just existing, they're told, once again, these weight biases that they're weak-willed or they're uncompliant, um, that they're lazy, unattractive. Um, and this just, this gets internalized and it leads to these internalized weight biases where essentially someone who exists in a larger body isn't going to go to the doctor and perceive help because they're like, I'm not a skinny white affluent woman. Like that doesn't fit me. And also like I'm being celebrated over here for engaging in these unhealthy behaviors. Right. So that sort of perpetuates that, that first component of my paper. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so you say you have three yeah. main barriers, right, to treatment and that, that, you know, that, um, that clinicians can just have these biases and they, they can be either medical people, doctors, therapists, dietitians, and they can just make assumptions uh, about certain things, right? And so that can be a barrier to treatment. And then so people don't even seek treatment sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, which sort of goes into my second point, which you highlighted that if a doctor also is only scanning for people that are thin, white, affluent women, they're going to miss a lot of people. They're going to miss those in larger bodies. They're going to miss people of color, men, anyone who doesn't fit that stereotype. Um so that's a big part of the failure of the clinician to diagnose um, and treat properly. And then there's also my third point, there's just a lack of treatment resources in general. I mean, mental health care is already such a struggle to get, eating disorder care especially, I'm sure, Tracy, as mm -hmm. you have experienced. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and if you're someone who exists in a larger body and you need a treatment team that consists of a therapist and a dietitian and a medical professional 
and a psychiatrist maybe, and all of these providers um, are supposed to not have weight biases. And the research even shows that eating disorder specialists themselves oftentimes have those weight biases. Um, I mean, you're facing a lot of barriers just trying to find a team that isn't going to cause potentially for further harm. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also the piece of insurance, which um, is a whole ordeal with, um, if you exist in a larger body, you're likely to be diagnosed with EDNOS, which insurance companies often don't cover or they cover um, a more limited treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Well, I think binge eating disorder now is covered in the DSM, mm -hmm. but, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, uh, many people have a lot of shame going to treatment for a binge eating disorder. And it doesn't necessarily mean that because you're in a larger body, you're struggling with binge eating disorder. And that's what I, I think that you're saying about like the, the people, uh, that was your second point about clinicians diagnosing appropriately. You, you cannot make assumptions based on body size, weight, or shape, but you need to look at behaviors. You need to look at the, the life domains that are affected. Mm -hmm. um, and then your last point about treatment resources, I completely agree. We're in the midst of a mental health crisis here. And uh, we've got treatment facilities that have waiting lists that are through the roof, it's at least in Washington state. I don't know mm -hmm. about other states, uh, but I, I've actually had to refer clients out to other states to, mm -hmm. uh, to get treatment because of the lack of resources in, in Washington state. So, so those are your three points. The, the, um, the need, like maybe we don't think that you need to have treatment because mm -hmm. we don't see you as disordered. Mm -hmm. uh, and then let's not diagnose appropriately or refer appropriately. And then there's the resources, even if we do. Um, so tell us, Amelia, how does a health at every size approach to eating disorder treatment help people just transcend these barriers and um, move toward lasting recovery like you experienced versus relapsing? Yeah, um, I think it's multifaceted as most things are. Um, I think for me, the overarching thing is that since um, health at every size is looking at these systemic issues and hoping to address them, um, that hopefully means that long-term you're helping to deconstruct the system that leads to eating disorders. Um, but there's also a benefit in that in helping the individual in that by having providers who are more aware of their own biases, you're able to be a better practitioner for those who might have intersecting identities with race, with disability, with gender. And I think that's a component of health at every size that's that's really important. Mm. Um, yeah, and then there's this sort of practical aspects like intuitive eating, which has really strong empirical support. Um, mm -hmm. And I think from a philosophical perspective, this sort of makes sense to me because when you're thinking about um, eating disorder care and like the focus on weight and uh, amount of calories consumed, the focus of the eating disorder still remains in a sense. You're still fixating on the symptomatology. And I think 
And of course, in some senses, I think that especially in early recovery and for certain individuals, that structure is helpful. But I think ultimately finding freedom from that structure is really what you want in your recovery. Yeah, and intuitive eating, meaning that you are actually, you know, noticing when you're hungry, uh, noticing when you're full, um, being, you know, being able to uh, incorporate a large, you know, variety of foods in into your um, repertoire, and, um, and being able to feed yourself um, as intuitively as you can, like, this is what I want right now. And this is what I think my body needs. And so it's, it's a, it's a whole concept. I'll go ahead and link to that, because I'm glad you mentioned it. I did not have that in the show notes before, but I will put that in there. Uh, some information about what intuitive eating is and what it's all about. But I'm glad you, you mentioned that for sure. And uh, there's that uh, aspect of just being able to be compassionate towards yourself as you move toward recovery, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. And, and to sort of second what you're saying, I think that embodiment work is also really important in having sort of that holistic healing that health at every size provides and incorporated in that is that self-compassion work, which once again is very empirically validated. Um, mm -hmm. And especially with folks who exist in larger bodies, self-compassion work has um, demonstrated a, a sort of protection against internalized weight biases, which I think is really interesting and important. Yeah. Yeah. And we mentioned the BMI before and, and how, you know, medically and also in the DSM-4, or sorry, gosh, I just dated myself. The <laughs> DSM-5 TR now, right, mm -hmm. uh, that I have online, thanks to my friend Ken at Ken's Counseling Couch. Uh, <laughs> you know, you it actually tells clinicians, therapists, to use the BMI in diagnosing uh, such eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, right? And so the weight-centered approach uses that BMI specifically, like, doctors and dietitians mm -hmm. and I know therapists have to use it to some extent um, mm -hmm. um, and yet uh, the Hayes model health at every size model works to combat that mm -hmm. and so it's really more of a non-discriminative type of care right mm -hmm. yeah definitely so I guess the takeaway is that um Individuals and organizations that align with health at every size, uh, they advocate against the weight bias, right, that you were talking about, and discrimination in healthcare. Uh, this means that um, health at every size is helping individuals with eating disorders, but it's also combating the, uh, the issues that influence the development of eating disorders. So it's doing a bunch of things. So your thesis <laughs> is a really important topic. Uh, I would love to see it when it's done for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully it is. Is it done? Is it nearly done? Yeah. A solid draft is done. I got to keep editing it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm going to go ahead and show some resources on the screen. We've already showed ASTA and that has, they have the trademark for health at every size. And so you can read about health at every size uh, at uh, asda.org. 
Another great resource is the National Eating Disorders Association. This is nationaleatingdisorders.org. They have so many resources on this website and uh, some, not just for the people who are struggling, but for people who are loved ones, friends, family members, and they have a lot of really good stuff. Uh, so ANAD is the National Association of Anorexia and Associated Disorders. And it doesn't really quite fit the acronym. So that's why I'm getting so confused when I think about it. But that is an awesome website to go to, to look for resources about anorexia. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things I really love is Feast. Feast-ed.org. I was introduced to this site when I was doing my um I was trying to do my four core classes to be an eating disorder specialist down in Lewis and Clark College in, in Oregon. And so FEAST stands for Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment of Eating Disorders. So that's feast-ed.org. And I'll tell you what, that is an awesome website. Anybody who wants any kind of family member who wants to understand a little bit more about eating disorders can go to that website. Uh, and then finally, we've got uh, IADEP, uh, which, okay, so IADEP is um, IADEP.com, International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals. That's who certifies people like me to be an eating disorder professional. Anything you want to say as far as closing comments, Amelia? You are just an amazing practicum student. Um, again, I hope we keep in touch after you leave and after you graduate. And I know you're going to go on to do great things, but do you have any closing comments that you want to make? No, just thank you for having me on and thank you for being wonderful and mentoring me. It's been, it's really been a great addition to my senior year. Yeah, Amelia, you've been able to uh, attend a couple of sessions that uh, mm -hmm. um, our clients have been in, and uh, they have appreciated you, as have I. So uh, thank you so much. I really appreciated having you here <laughs> and doing this 30-minute uh, broadcast, which I'm going to be trying to do more of in the future. In fact, mm -hmm. I am going to be moving away from one-hour podcasts and mm -hmm. doing more uh, sessions like this with people like you who I know and trust. And uh, so with that, I will just say, if you don't have anything else to say, <laughs> I will just say thank you so much for being on Common the Chaos and um, take care. Alrighty, thank you. Thanks for listening to Common the Chaos podcast. You can find all Common the Chaos podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, Amazon, and on YouTube. You can also go to www.calmingthechaospodcast.com for more information and to see all podcast episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.